So hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Diane Dreer. Diane is a best-selling author, researcher, and positive psychology coach. Her books, The Tao of Inner Peace, The Tao of Personal Leadership, The Tao of Womanhood, Inner Gardening, and Your Personal Renaissance, have been translated into 10 languages, and her work has been featured in media outlets, including USA Today, Entrepreneur, Red Book, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, Science of Mind, radio and TV talk shows, and websites on leadership and personal growth. Dreer has a PhD in Renaissance English Literature from UCLA, as well as a master's degree in counseling. She is a HeartMath clinical practitioner and a professional certified coach with the International Coaching Federation. Her research on positive psychology and hope has been published online and in academic books and journals. She is currently Professor Emerita and Associate Director of the Applied Spirituality Institute at Santa Clara University and a lecturer in the Positive Psychology Guild in the UK. So hello, Diane. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here, Jacob. So as we were speaking just a moment ago before we officially started the interview, I was mentioning to you that I've been very much enjoying reading through your book, The Tao of Inner Peace, which I'd just like to say at the outset is now released as an audiobook. Uh, but really, this is your first book, yes? It's my first uh, trade book. I've published uh, books in Renaissance literature, literary criticism before that. All right. Well, that's. I thought that was very interesting, the PhD in Renaissance English literature. So what led you from Renaissance English literature and, um, and that doctoral work into Taoism? How did that transition happen? <laughs> um, and uh, well, gradually, I suppose, the uh, Tao tells us the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Um, however, my step into Renaissance literature. My dissertation was on spiritual development in Renaissance literature. And I guess my core uh, passion is discovering spiritual development in Renaissance literature, in Eastern philosophy, uh, in my own spiritual practice, meditation, yoga. So uh, I've been fascinated by the convergence of East and West for most of my life. I grew up as the child of an Air Force officer, and we moved all the time. And when I was 10 years old, we lived in the Philippine Islands, which was mind blowing because my father brought back art and culture and things. He was a pilot from Hong Kong, from Tokyo. And I fell in love with the beauty, the serenity of Asian art and tried to duplicate it, tried to paint pictures like that. Uh, so from age 10, I was interested in the Eastern way of, of perceiving things, so much so that when we were transferred back to the States in Missouri, I was painting the picture of a palm tree in my art class, and all the other students laughed at me and said, Diane doesn't know how to draw a tree, because all the branches are coming out of the top. And uh, I realized that there is no one way for a tree to be, uh, that there are trees in the east and trees in the west, there are pine, pine trees and palm trees, and there's this sense of, of both and instead of right or wrong, either or, all or nothing. 
So um, Eastern philosophy gives me a holistic vision of life, which I think is really essential these days and which our world really needs. But I've been, uh, I've been on that path for quite some time. So what I, I'm curious actually just about the the spiritual development in Renaissance literature. What what was what was that spiritual development? Was that a sort of a Christian um, kind of couched in Christian um, uh, religion, or what was that? Um, sort of. I uh, focused on a, a poet that people don't know much about, Thomas Traherne, who believed that uh, nature was a gift from God. And it was our duty to enjoy the world aright, you know. Um, and he didn't seem to, in those days, this was unusual. He didn't seem to believe in sin, in original sin. He believed that we were all created, you know, like Adam and Eve, and that the garden was our garden, and we were to respect it, enjoy it, love it, and as he put it, to enjoy the world aright, which meant to meditate on nature. Mm. You can see that there's a real similarity. I mean, Thomas Traherne was a 17th century poet, and he didn't read uh, Taoism, but his worldview was very similar. That's beautiful. I'm I'm so interested. Th Thomas Traherne. Traherne, T-R-A-H-E-R-N-E. Excellent. I'm going to have to look that up because that just sounds so fascinating, and it reminds me. I was I was speaking to someone else the other day who who um, uh, is a, a, a theologian, but he's done a bunch of work with essentially Christian mystics, uh, some of whom were women, who also had this um, much more, very different from kind of what you would think of as sort of Christian orthodoxy in terms of the relationship with the earth and, and the invitation towards um, uh, the affirmation of life, kind of as you're saying. So, we're moving into Taoism here, which has obviously um, been a huge kind of influence in your life and your work. And obviously all of your books have the Tao as kind of a central hub or component. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'm, you know, we've actually done a very few interviews. I think I've only interviewed one person out of almost 150 ep uh, episodes who has worked in Taoism, not because from lack of interest, just because it seems like they're there for whatever reason, whether I just haven't encountered them as much or or um, or what. But I'm really excited to talk about some of the principles of Taoism because I think uh, many of our people in our audience are very interested in Taoism, and and yet we haven't had this opportunity to kind of dig into some of the principles. So, so what are the sort of fundamental features of Taoism. Okay. Well, Lao Tzu apparently wrote the Tao Te Ching of over 25 centuries ago during the Warring States period in ancient China, when his world as he knew it was falling apart. Does that sound familiar? Mm. <laughs> so um, he found hope wandering through nature, uh, connecting with the symbolism in nature. He observed the lessons in a mountain stream saw that water was gentle and nurturing, yet with perseverance can cut through solid rock. So that there's a strength in yin, in, in, uh, you know, in nurturing. There's uh, the flexibility, the resilience uh, that he found in a grove of bamboo, which bends with the wind so it doesn't break. So, and, and ultimately, 
he observed and wrote in the Tao Te Ching about the energies that comprise the universe, the energies of yin, the nurturing, and yang, the active, both and, um, mountain and valley, day and night, open and closed. We need both. So the Tao gives us the wisdom of living systems, the patterns of energy within and around us, because uh, as he noted, we are part of nature <laughs> and um, the Chinese character Ren for a, uh, a person looks like an upside down V. And one horizontal line across means big. It's like, you know, the person is holding the arms out saying big. A another line above that line is heaven or nature. So that the human being, the, the character for the human being is part of the character of nature. We are one with nature. And our principles that help us live a balanced life are the same principles that keep nature in balance. And we can be inspired and guided by studying nature. Yeah. And yet it seems that you know we're more interested in studying our computer screens at this point in life than, than nature, unfortunately. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I, I, I wanted to touch on just a couple of the other concepts that I thought were really, um, seem to be quite central to the, the Taoist kind of cosmology or philosophy. And you mentioned yin and yang, and, and then there's also the, the Tay and the Tao, yes? And um, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Okay, the Tao uh, means the way or the path, and uh, Tao Te Ching, right? And Te or De means character or virtue. And then Ching is, an, is a sacred book. So that the title of the Tao Te Ching means the, the book of the, of, the, of the way, walking the path of virtue. Some people say walking the path with heart. Mm -hmm. uh, being aware of our hearts, the heart of our deepest values as we walk the path of life, I suppose. And then what about Wu Wei? <laughs> okay, Wu Wei, uh, doing nothing. <laughs> very hard uh, for me to do, Diana. Very, very, very difficult. Um, it's, it's a yin skill. You know, we have yin and yang, uh, the active, yang and the uh, contemplative yin. And uh, as a meditator, you do have contemplative yin, okay, in life, yeah. without which there is no balance. Well, there are times when the best thing to do when we don't know what to do, especially when we're feeling chronically stressed, is to just pause and wait and watch for the energies and, and listen uh, and wait for right timing. So um, Wu Wei in my life today uh, sometimes means pausing when I feel stressed and taking a, a few deep mindful breaths to cut the stress reaction so that I can go back to a more centered space and act wisely. That helps when I get an email that makes me irritable. <laughs> uh, instead of just, shooting back a flaming email at somebody, 
to just pause and say, okay, you know, let's have the wisdom of Wu Wei and let's not do anything right now. Uh, mm -hmm. And sometimes, especially sent an email to a lot of people, um, my watching and waiting, the wisdom of Wu Wei, somebody else answers. I get a new insight that would help me respond more clearly. So um, again, that's very alien to our busy, active, yang, Western, Western worldview. But I think it's essential. If we don't really know what to do, uh, maybe we should not do. Maybe we should be and listen. Yeah. I mean, especially in this culture, it seems like Wu Wei is, is a radical act. You know, it's something that takes um, a lot of seemingly in, an ability to disentangle ourselves from the social forces that would tell us to do quite the opposite or and 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 also suggest that doing the opposite i.e I. being hyper productive is actually what is going to lead to fulfillment when in fact it leads to imbalance as you're saying yes um, in in the western world uh we confuse being fulfilled with being filled full uh, mm. <laughs> Action, activities, busy cram schedule, noise, uh, and that is not really fulfillment. It's the opposite. I love that. We confuse fulfillment with being filled full. That's so good. That's, <laughs> that's going to be on our one of the quote images that we put on Instagram for this episode. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to read um, this from your book, which I, just, I thought was really beautiful, um, just about the Tao. And the Tao cannot be reduced to names and formulas. It is Wu Ming without a name because it's the source of all existence. In its infinite creative potential, the Tao is Wu, eternal non-being. In its creative existence, it is you, eternal being. Why you? Eternally changing and evolving, it is neither one nor the other, always both. So, it's so beautiful. And um, I mean, the whole book is sort of, you know, um, uh, it has many, many beautiful quotes like this. When I think about Taoism, uh, you know, before I read your book, when I've thought about Taoism, oftentimes I think about, um, I think about a very elegant sort of worldview and, and philosophy of balance. But I don't think so much just because of my own lack of, of knowledge and education around this, so much of, of contemplative practice that, that, of the type that we find in other traditions that is so, you know, thoroughly kind of explicated in texts and all of that. Um, but in your book, there's many, many practices and many sort of suggested contemplations and meditations. So is there, but I'm curious, is there kind of a formal path of, of practice in, in Taoism? Or is this more of a kind of modern um, uh, intersection? Oh, good question. Well, there is religious Taoism, which has certain very, you know, uh, explicit rituals, uh, mm -hmm. you know, going within and, and uh, sending energy through the body. And then there's Taoism as a philosophy, which is more of what I subscribe to as a way of looking at the world that expands our awareness. And the uh, quote that you just read about the fact that we cannot reduce the Tao to a definition. You know, uh, the word that can be defined is not the eternal word. You know, the Tao that path that can be charted is not the eternal path. 
Because once we define something, we limit it. And we have to, we have to do that or else we wouldn't be able to get through our days. We'd walk down the street and we'd be transfixed by every single tree and instead of saying, okay, tree <laughs> or you know, car, we'd be, we'd be having a kind of a religious experience with each one. Uh, so that we have to categorize in order to, you know, to just get through our days. But categorizing is very close to stereotyping, mm. which means we reduce everything to one limited definition. Like my uh, classmates in the Midwest who, who saw a tree being the kind of tree they were used to seeing, and they couldn't recognize that there were other kinds of trees. Or if we see a human being, and we, you know, we, we reduce that person to ageist, sexist, you know, uh, and all kinds of other stereotypes instead of recognizing the richness and the infinity of that person or indeed of the person that we are. Um, we are woo in the sense that we are, we are never complete as long as we're alive. We're always evolving and becoming. And what I like about that Tao quote is that it's very close to quantum physics with particles, which are, you know, <clears throat> solid as it were, and waves, which are not. And they're, you know, the physicists tell us that reality is made up of particle waves and that they, they transform, you know, from one to the other. And that's what happens in our lives, our thoughts, become actions are thought of maybe I want to learn more about Sanskrit or you know a certain subject. So then the action is to actually take a step to do that. Um, our thoughts structure and create our reality. Uh, and a thought is invisible. We can't see it or touch it. It's not tangible, but it leads to tangible results. And so the Tao is both you know, eternally becoming and eternally being. Mm. I just want to go back to something that you said, because I've never really heard it described this way, the way you um, describe words as, as limiting, but also suggest that if we didn't have those, if we were navigating the world without words, that actually we would be the words help us to sort of live a pragmatic life and without them we would just be kind of in a mystical state of rapture with all of these you know the, the infinite blurb that is the car and the infinite you know green um shrubby thing that is the tree and i i love that idea because it, it actually it, it it's you know it 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 illustrates the the pragmatic nature of words and how you know I actually need words to just live kind of a practical you know day-to-day -day life but also you know it suggests that the words also you know we need to understand what they're there for and that they also then stand in our way of actually accessing a little bit of that that divine you know rapture that you know you're suggesting is there when the words do dissolve and I think that's just beautiful I, I hadn't quite thought about um, the relationship with between words and and the divine in that way and and how they're actually you know pragmatic at the same time that they're limiting yeah yeah they help us navigate through our lives but uh, as we're traveling and navigating uh, we don't pause long enough to have that rapture so it's <laughs> I guess it's another kind of yin and yang we need both yeah. you know yeah so. 
to this point about contemplative practice, I'm I'm curious, you know, and of, since you included so many in your book, maybe we can talk about just a couple for those who are listening who really want to be able to learn how to kind of cultivate this sense of um, the Tao in their lives, this balance, um, who feel that, you know, not, you know, simply thinking about it, it doesn't quite work for them. What are some practices that, that, um, that kind of, you know, effectuate this, this change to live in alignment with the Tao? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, for one thing, there are certain uh, spiritual practices. The Tao says, can you go through your days holding fast to the Tao, releasing your tension as you focus your breathing and you clear your vision and open yourself to life? So there's, there's a sense of, as in mindfulness meditation, pausing and taking a deep breath and realizing and breathing in, you know, we are breathing in peace for example. I have a number of short practices in my book about breathing in peace, breathing out tension. And what's interesting is that these practices work according to uh, psychologists and neuroscientists because pausing for slow, deep breathing cuts the stress reaction. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, you know, gosh, the HeartMath Institute, you know, there's heart-centered, heart-focused breathing, which cuts the stress reaction. There's a Center for uh, Compassion Altruism Research and Education at Stanford, uh, led by Jim Doty, who's a neurosurgeon. Uh, again, slow, focused, mindful breathing cuts the stress reaction, and the Center for Compassion they're, they're committed to this because we cannot be compassionate about others when we're a in a defensive state, stressed out, trying to protect ourselves. We yeah. become very self-centered when we're under stress. And literally what happens is that our higher brain centers are cut off because we get into fight, flight, or freeze. So mm. uh, very important physiologically. Uh, Jim Doty told me that, actually it's in his book too, um, this beautiful book called Into the Magic Shop. Uh, I guess it's a short digression. He grew up uh, with an alcoholic father who could not hold down a job. And his mother was suicidally depressed and was trying to kill herself uh, repeatedly. And this, this was a dysfunctional family. At age 12, he wandered into a magic shop in a strip mall. A wonderful woman who was the mother of the owner said to him, I will teach you magic if you come back here every day. And she taught him mindfulness meditation. And she also fed him lunch because they, there was no food in the house and they had been homeless. And, and so from a, from a childhood, which would be predictive of, you know, not becoming an internationally known uh, neurosurgeon and a friend of the Dalai Lama's and a professor at Stanford, uh, we would not have expected that from him. But the slow, deep, mindful breathing he uses when he is in a, a really challenging brain surgery. And he, he described that in his book. You know, he was working on this boy and uh, the brain started bleeding and he took three deep mindful breaths and then went in there and corrected the problem. If he had, if we don't take those deep mindful breaths, 
we, uh, we approach our lives and our problems with a very limited way of being, uh, fight or flight or freeze. <laughs> and we, we don't have the resources that our higher brain centers could give us. So um, the ancient wisdom of the Tao and the current insights from neuroscience and positive psychology really converge. We each need to take charge of our lives and be mindful and recognize when we're triggered by stress and then do something as simple as breathing. We do that anyway, but do <laughs> breathe in a mindful way, slow down, and it, it completely changes our perspective on the world. So that's one great uh, spiritual practice from the Tao. Another is, is being in nature. I mean, we're all in nature because we're part of it but we sometimes isolate and insulate ourselves from it to just go out and walk around in nature. And again, research has shown now that uh, walking around in nature uh, can help relieve depression and anxiety, which fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. Lao Tzu seemed to have known that years ago. Um, he said at one point in the Tao, when we value ourselves as part of nature, and value nature as ourselves. We're at home in the oneness of Tao. This being at home, at peace, safe, a part of something larger than ourselves. That's a, a major aspect of Taoist practice. So uh, meditation, breathing, you know, the yin, and then the yang of going outside. But actually, they're part of the same thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing those two. And I always love talking about breathing because whenever the the guest is speaking about it, I find myself changing my breath and breathing more deeply. And <laughs> mindfully. So I was having a blissed out breath response as you were describing <laughs> the practice. And you know where, where else I always find myself doing that automatically is in the dentist office where them, when they're about to inject me with Novocaine. <laughs> <laughs> because I, there's nothing more anxiety inducing than a massive needle that's about to go into your mouth. Uh, <laughs> I totally hear you. Yeah. <laughs> so out there at the very least, use your mindful breathing at the dentist office. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's beautiful. And, and just again, to those who are listening, the, there are many other um, contemplations and um, suggested uh uh, considerations and practices and experiential um, uh, uh, um, suggestions that are in Diane's book. So do do read it or get the audiobook, which has just been released. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the the now, the Tao of now, <laughs> and the and the current circumstances. Just to bring you know in your book at the end, especially you talk about. A Taoist politics, and um, and uh, and so I'm curious now, since it was quite a while ago since you ha have written the book, has how has that the this sort of divisiveness that we've seen emerge over the last several years, um, seemingly you know it only gets worse and worse, and and uh, seemingly without end, you know how can a Taoist perspective help us to move past some of this impasse of, of um, you know, this us versus them that is so characteristic of our politics? 
Oh dear, I think we should uh, spread Taoism throughout the world. Um, the Tao Te Ching tells us that all life embodies yin and embraces yang through their union, achieving harmony. And that the Tao shows us a view of the world that is not either or, but both and. And what happens when we're under stress is that when our higher brain centers are shut down, or offline at least temporarily while we're stressed, let's hope they're not totally shut down. We, although sometimes for some people, I, oh, that's a digression. I'm wondering. Uh, when we are in a state of chronic stress, we tend to see things as either or, all or nothing, win or lose. And it's a fight, right? Uh, it's, it's someone who disagrees with us can become the enemy. And, uh, you know, then we, like this, back and forth, you know. Uh, the Tao perspective encourages us, challenges us to find common ground. And um, there's a chapter in my book where I write about Taoist conflict resolution, which mm -hmm. I learned from actually a wonderful um, man named Dudley Weeks, who it was an international conflict resolution facilitator. I interviewed him and we invited him to our campus at Santa Clara University to, uh, to give workshops on conflict resolution. And he has these steps that we listen to ourselves first and say, what do I really need? You know, we go within, right? And we have to, you know, calm ourselves down in order to do that because otherwise we're defensive and, you know, anxious and that's not gonna help. And then we find a neutral place to meet with the other person and ask that person, what do you really need? Not what do you want, demand, but what do you really need? And then look for some shared needs, some common ground. And ultimately, beneath all the differences in the discord, we all have common ground. We're standing and living on it. It's called planet Earth. You know, it's basic, okay? We have basic needs that we share in common. So to find common ground and then to take one step, Dudley calls those stepping stones that can lead us, you know, to create something together, in which case people in conflict can become partners. Um, and this can happen interpersonally with relationships. It can happen at work and it should happen internationally. They're the same exact, you know, uh, processes because we're all human beings, despite our our labels and our titles. So uh, I was reading Dudley's book one day when I was department chair in the English department at Santa Clara University, and two of my I, I heard this commotion outside my office, and apparently the administrative assistant and one of my uh, faculty colleagues were having a big altercation and they were almost in tears yelling at each other. And I thought, oh, good, here's an opportunity. I have no idea what to do. So I, here's an opportunity, you know, this is uh, to use Dudley's practice. So I got them and I said, you know, okay, <clears throat> what do you need? What do you need? And uh, found out that the faculty member had needed something Xeroxed and copied for her class. Uh, and she had said, put a note or something on the administrative assistant's desk, but she didn't say when she needed it by. 
Uh, and so here she was, she was trying to run off to class and, and it wasn't there and it was embarrassing and you know she was upset. And okay, lack of communication. So what do you need? What do you need? Together they came up with a, with a nice little form that we later used in our department that the faculty could fill out and say, name, what do you need? When do you need it by? How many copies? Whatever. It was simple. But in doing that, in preparing that together, they became partners and then they became friends uh, because they recognized that, you know, they weren't enemies. They, they simply needed to work on something together. They needed to build a bridge instead of a wall. I mean, that's a simple example. Mm -hmm. uh, Dudley has more examples in his book. Um, he was working in an inner city neighborhood and um, there was, you know, crime and, you know, people were upset, the homeowners were upset, the people who owned little uh, businesses downtown were upset because there had been fights in the street and nobody was happy. So we got people together and said, what do you think your community needs? And some of the teenage gang members were also there, you know, <laughs> parents, children, whatever. And he said, okay, and he had them write them down. And he said, you know, how many shared needs do you think you had? And they, they, they figured not those people, we don't have anything in common with those people, those teenage gangs, et cetera, um, those, you know, business people. Well, they had a lot of shared needs. And the first thing they, they thought they needed would be streetlights because the streets were so dark, people at night, people didn't wanna come downtown and the businesses were losing money. The teenage gangs were, were having problems because they couldn't recognize their own gang members from the gangs from the other side of town and they were beating up some of the wrong people. Uh, so they, they made a petition they, uh, to the city council, they got streetlights installed and somehow they all realized they could work together. They built a community center and a community health center and they built a, a much more harmonious community because despite all their differences in perspectives, they realized they had shared needs. So um, the crime obviously re was reduced, the lights helped with that, but they brought more light to their lives on many levels by recognizing their shared needs and by working in partnership. So that uh, instead of the false dilemma of either or, there needs to be a both and, and, and the people involved need to br be brought together to use their perspectives and their talents to create that bridge, that Taoist conflict resolution at best. And we see what happens in our world when it breaks down. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess when, yeah, when you were describing this, which I, I love this, you know, very simple response or question of, you know, what is it that you need? But I, I suppose um, in, in many circumstances, it kind of presumes that the the person or you know or the group knows what they need at a fundamental level right such that they're not projecting that onto the other person right so then so I mean and we can think about this interpersonally where someone says well what I need is for you to do this or you <laughs> yeah. to change and to stop being that way right yeah and, and we can also think about it even with the war in Ukraine it's like I need that 
we we need that territory, right? That's what we need. When when really like that need is obviously some kind of symptom of a deeper need, mm -hmm. some kind of spiritual need that's not being fulfilled. So how does Taoism then respond, or, you know, what or what would be a technique to kind of in you know intervene in that sort of situation? Oh boy. Uh in that particular situation, someone, perhaps more than someone, uh, some individuals, groups would need to come together and to help those two different polarities recognize the difference between what you say, projection, you know, what they want, okay, but what they truly need is something deeper. Yeah. Get beyond wants. Yeah, I want that for my ego. You know, I've got to have a power domination here. Well, why? What's what's beneath that? Uh, is there some kind of insecurity? Probably, you know. Uh, I mean, why would one big country <laughs> invade another unless there was a sense of being threatened by by Ukraine in some way? Uh, I mean, it it seems like underneath a lot of that bullying and blustering, there's fear mm -hmm. and fear of somehow being vulnerable to NATO or being threatened by a democracy nearby, uh, you know, that that's the underlying need. And we'd need a wise mediator who could get to that uh, level. A long time ago now, when Jimmy Carter was president of the United States, he met with the leader of, <laughs> okay, uh, Sadat and Begin, again, it was a long time ago, okay, <laughs> at Camp David, and was trying to come up with, you know, a peace accord, a peace agreement, and nothing worked. And uh, they were ready to leave. And one of them took out pictures of his grandchildren. And then the, the other one said, oh, you know, here are pictures of my grandchildren. And they realized with Jimmy Carter's facilitation, that they wanted a world of peace for their grandchildren. Mm. And they signed the Camp David Accord. So mm. they were in a place, they were in a neutral territory. Camp David is a president's retreat in our country, up, you know, up in the in the hills, <clears throat> in nature with beautiful trees. <laughs> so they were breathing in uh, some nice Tao uh, relaxation. But uh, and they were not in their usual places, which, which helps people get a more objective perspective. And they had Jimmy Carter, who was very patient listening. You know, So you have a, a, a neutral territory, a place where people can feel more at peace. You have a wise facilitator, and you have people reaching beneath their demands and their wants and their fears to an underlying need that they both share. Mm. That's beautiful. I, I love the, that story of, of seeing the vulnerable side of the other person in the form of your family, you know? And, and I mean, it just is, it seems quite simple, right? It's just, it's a humanization of the other. And through the simple, you know, example of seeing someone's child or someone's grandchild and, 
I mean, what what a what a simple but potentially radical tactic, you know, in 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 these conversations between people that consider themselves enemies. I mean, I I can even think of examples that um, that I've heard regarding people who you know are against gay rights or who who don't like queer people in general, and they because they but then they they know this one gay or lesbian person, and they're like, oh well, no, we love you. But you know those people, you know what I mean, and they don't see that connection right because it's when they're when they're intimate at hand, when they're close at hand, they 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 can see the humanity of the other. But then then we get kind of caught up in these you know ideas of the other that then you know dehumanize them, and it seems like this is just happening all over the place today. Definitions and labels dehumanize absolutely. When I, I live uh, 60 miles south of San Francisco in California, and uh, many years ago now, Harvey Milk, one of our supervisors who was gay, uh, and a friend of my, one of my colleagues who was also gay, uh, came and said, encourage everybody to come out and, and you know declare themselves, come out of the closet. If you're gay, come out. And I was wondering at the time, why? And then I could see why, because, you know, my next door neighbor, my, my colleague, my friend down the hall, um, my best friend's brother, you know, all these people I knew, I realized, oh, goodness, you know, um, it's not those people, those nameless, you know, stereotype people that we don't know. Those are our friends, our neighbors, and our families. These, these, this is our community. And it broke down barriers because everyone, you know, around here realized that we that gay people were were part of our community, and uh, you know, it's it's a lot more comfortable now uh, to be gay, at least in some parts of the world. Uh, other parts where you know it's still uh, dangerous and and even life threatening. Wait, did you just tell me that you knew Harvey Milk? Um, I did not know Harvey Milk. My my best friend uh, and colleague was went to college with Harvey Milk. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so one one removed from Harvey Milk. Yeah, two degrees of separation. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean that that film about him is one of the most incredible films. I can't remember the actor who is in it now, but such an incredible film. Um, so yeah, this has been such a lovely conversation, Diane, and I'm 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 really excited that you're your book, which is so beautiful and and potentially transformative for people who have not, you know, um, been introduced to Taoism and the way in which it can enrich our lives. I'm so glad your your book is being, you know, recirculated now, still as a book, but also as an audio book. Are, are there any kind of concepts or teachings or anything from uh, the book or Taoism or generally that you think would be important to share with the audience? Okay, well, I think that a lot of people are feeling stressed and anxious these days for obvious reasons. And it's important for us to actively affirm hope. The Tao tells us that the way to greater light leads through the darkness. Going ahead feels like falling back. The even path seems rugged and hilly, the highest power a yielding valley. The Tao encourages us not to hide from the realities we face, but to acknowledge them mindfully and recognize what we're feeling 
the way to greater light leads through the darkness. Relating the wisdom of the Tao to times like this, to be kind to ourselves, to spend time in nature, to take time to listen to ourselves, to ask, how am I feeling? What do I need right now? And uh, there's a lot of research now that shows that mixed uh, feelings are helpful in times of great stress, that it's up to us when we feel like we're in the middle of a dark night to go out and look at the stars and recognize that there are, there are stars, there are bright spots in our lives, the people we know, the nature that we are part of, that enlivens us, that inspires us, the source of peace that we can find inside by, by pausing and taking a deep breath, and by simply being grateful for the small blessings in our lives. That is not to ignore the major challenges, but that's to, to balance the yin and the yang so that we can move forward in life with hope. So it's up to us, I think each of us, to find our own guiding lights, our own stars that can guide us through this dark time. Wow, that was what what beautiful words! I can hear your your English PhD in there. <laughs> That's you. beautiful words. It's um yeah. I feel like we have to just we have to end. We can't uh, add any more because I want to end on that beautiful note. Um, Diane, it's been such a pleasure. I again, I've been speaking with Diane Dreer, and her book among many is the Tao of Inner Peace. And uh, you can also look into the Tao of Personal Relationships, the Tao of Womanhood, Inner, inner Gardening, and Your Personal Renaissance. Uh, but the Tao of Inner Peace is the, is the book that I read for today and the one that's being uh, recirculated or re, um, relaunched as an audiobook. And where can you find that audiobook? Is it on Amazon Audible and all the other suspects? You bet. It, there's actually a free sample of it on Amazon Audible. Okay, perfect. And is there anything else, uh, Diane, that you're that's coming up for you that you'd like to share with the audience? I would just like to remind us that all that the Tao encourages us to combine yin and yang, awareness and action in our lives, and to just be mindful, you know, of what we truly believe in and what we value, so that we can take positive action and move forward in this time. <laughs> 